0: Chapter Ten. Another fortnight had passed. Ivan Ilyitch could not now get up from the sofa. He did not like lying in bed and lay on the sofa, and lying almost at all the time facing the wall in loneliness, he suffered all the inexplicable agonies, and in loneliness pondered always the inexplicable question: What is it? Can it be true that it's death? And an inner voice answered. Yes, it is true. Why these agonies? And a voice answered, For no reason. Beyond and besides this, there was nothing. From the very beginning of his illness, ever since Ivan Ilyich first went to the doctor's, his life had been split up into two contradictory moods, which were continually alternating. One was despair and the anticipation of an uncomprehended and awful death. The other was hope and an absorbed watching over the actual condition of his body. First, there was nothing confronting him but a kidney or intestine which had temporarily declined to perform their duties. Then there was nothing but an unknown awful death, which there was no escaping. These two moods had alternated from the very beginning of the illness— But the further the illness progressed, the more doubtful and fantastic became the conception of the kidney, and the more real the sense of approaching death. He had but to reflect on what he had been three months before and what he was now, to reflect how steadily he had been going downhill, for every possibility of hope to be shattered. Of late, in the loneliness in which he found himself, lying with his face to the back of the sofa, A loneliness in the middle of a populous town, and of his numerous acquaintances and his family. A loneliness than which none more complete could be found anywhere, not at the bottom of the sea, not deep down in the earth. Of late in this fearful loneliness, Ivan Ilyich had lived only in imagination in the past. One by one the pictures of his past rose up before him. It always began from what was nearest in time and went back to the most remote, to childhood, and rested there. If Ivan Ilyitch thought of the stewed prunes that had been offered him for dinner that day, his mind went back to the damp, wrinkled French plum of his childhood, of its peculiar taste and the flow of saliva when the stone was sucked. And along with this memory of a taste, there rose up a whole sense of memories of that period. His nurse— his brother, his playthings. "'I mustn't. It's too painful,' Ivan Ilyitch said to himself, and he brought himself back to the present. The button on the back of the sofa and the creases in the morocco. "'Morocco's, dear, and doesn't wear well. There was a quarrel over it, but the morocco was different, and different to the quarrel when we tore father's portfolio and were punished, and mamma brought us the tarts.' And again his mind rested on his childhood, and again it was painful, and he tried to drive it away and think of something else. And again at that point, together with that chain of associations, quite another chain of memories came into his heart, of how his illness had grown up and became more acute. It was the same there, the further back the more life there had been. There had been both more that was good in life and more of life itself. And the two began to melt into one. Just as the pain goes on getting worse and worse, so has my life, my whole life, gone on getting worse and worse. He thought. One light spot was was there at the back, at the beginning of life, and then it kept getting blacker and blacker, and going faster and faster, in inverse ratio to the square of the distance from the earth. Thought Ivan Ilyitch and the image of a stone falling downwards with increasing velocity sank into his soul. Life, a series of increasing sufferings, falls more and more swiftly swiftly to the end, the most fearful sufferings. I am falling, he shuddered. Shifted himself, would have resisted, but he knew beforehand that he could not resist, and again, with eyes weary with gazing at it, But unable not to gaze at what was before him, he stared at the back of the sofa and waited, waited expecting that fearful fall and shock and disillusion. Resistance is impossible, he said to himself. But if one could at least comprehend what it's for, even that's impossible. It could be explained if one were to say that I hadn't lived as I ought. But that can't be alleged, he said to himself thinking of all the regularity, correctness, and propriety of his life. "'That really can't be admitted,' he said to himself, his lips smiling ironically as though someone could see his smile and be deceived by it. No explanation. Agony. Death. What for? Chapter 11 So passed a fortnight. During that fortnight, an event occurred that had been desired by Ivan Ilyich and his wife. Petrashev made a formal proposal. This took place in the evening. Next day, Praskovia Fedorovna went in to her husband, revolving in her mind how to inform him of Fyodor Dmitrievitch's proposal, but that night there had been a change for the worse in Ivan Ilyich. Praskovia Fedorovna found him on the same sofa but in a different position. He was lying on his face, groaning, and staring straight before him with a fixed gaze. She began to talk of remedies. He turned his stare on her. She did not finish what she had begun saying. Such hatred of her in particular was expressed in that stare. "'For Christ's sake, let me die in peace,' he said. She would have gone away— but at that moment the daughter came in and went up to say good morning to him. He looked at his daughter just as at his wife, and to her inquiries how he was, he told her dryly that they would soon all be rid of him. Both were silent, sat a little while, and went out. "'How are we to blame?' said Loza to her mother, as though we had done it. "'I'm sorry for papa, but why punish us?' At the usual hour the doctor came Ivan Ilyich answered yes no never taking his exasperated stare from him and towards the end he said why you know you can do nothing so let me be we can relieve your suffering said the doctor even that you can't do let me be the doctor went into the drawing-room and told praskovia fedorovna that it was very serious and that the only resource left them was opium to relieve his sufferings, which must be terrible. The doctor said his physical sufferings were terrible, and that was true, but even more terrible than his physical sufferings were his mental sufferings, and in that lay his chief misery. His moral sufferings were due to the fact that during that night, as he looked at the sleepy, good-natured, broad-cheeked face of Garrison, the thought had suddenly come into his head— What, if in reality all my life, my conscious life, had been not the right thing? The thought struck him that what he had regarded before as an utter impossibility, that he had spent his life not as he ought, might be the truth. It struck him that those scarcely detected impulses of struggle within him against what was considered good by persons of higher position, scarcely detected impulses which he had dismissed, That they might be the real thing, and everything else might not be the, might be not, might be not the right thing. And his official work, and his ordering of his daily life and of his family, and these social and official interests, all that might be, all that might be not the right thing. He tried to defend it all to himself, and suddenly he felt all the weakness of what he was defending, and it was useless to defend it. But if it's so, he said to himself, and I am leaving life with the consciousness that I have lost all that was given me, and there's no correcting it, then what? He lay on his back and began going over the whole his whole life entirely anew. When he saw the footman in the morning, then his wife, then his daughter, then the doctor, every movement they made, every word they uttered, Confirmed for him the terrible truth that had been revealed to him in the night in them he saw himself saw all in which he had lived, and saw distinctly that it was not the right and was all not the right thing. it was a horrible, vast deception that concealed both life and death. This consciousness intensified his physical agonies, multiplied them tenfold. He groaned and tossed from side to side and pulled at the covering over him. It seemed to him that it was stifling him and weighing him down, and for that he hated them. They gave him a big dose of opium. He sank into unconsciousness. But at dinner time, the same thing began again. He drove them all away and tossed from side to side. His wife came to him and said, "Jean, darling, do this for my sake.' for my sake. It can't be, it can't do harm, and it often does good. Why, it's nothing, and often in health people. He opened his eyes wide. What? Take the sacrament? What for? No. Besides, she began to cry. Yes, my dear, I'll send for our priest. He's so nice. All right, very well, he said. When the priest came and confessed him, he was softened, felt as it were a relief from his doubts, and consequently from his sufferings, and there came a moment of hope. He began once more thinking of the appendix and the possibility of curing it. He took the sacrament with tears in his eyes. When they laid him down again after the sacrament for a minute, he felt comfortable, and again the hope of life sprang up. He began to think about the operation which had been suggested to him. To live! I want to live, he said to himself. His wife came in to congratulate him. She uttered the customary words and added, It's quite true, isn't it, that you're better? Without looking at her, he said, Yes. Her dress, her figure, the expression of her face, the tone of her voice, all told him the same. Not the right thing. All that in which you lived and were living is lying, deceit hiding life and death away from you. And as soon as he had formed that thought, hatred sprang up in him, and with that hatred agonizing physical sufferings, and with these sufferings the sense of inevitable approaching ruin. Something new was happening. There were twisting and shooting pains and a tightness in his breathing. The expression of his face as he uttered that Yes was terrible. After uttering that Yes... Looking her straight in the face, he turned onto his side or onto his face with the rapidity extraordinary in his weakness and shrieked, "Go away! Go away! Let me be!" wasn't really a shriek, but you get the picture. Okay, we're almost done. Sad. Okay, Chapter Twelve. From that moment, there began the scream that never ceased for three days, and was so awful that through two closed doors one could not hear it without horror at the moment when he so- answered his wife, he grasped that he had fallen, that there was no return, that the end had come quite the end, while doubt was still as unsolved, still remained doubt, oh oh. oh he screamed in varying intonations. He had begun screaming, I don't want to, and so had gone on screaming, on the same vowel sound, Oh! All these three days, during which time did not exist for him, he was struggling in that black sack into which he was being thrust by an unseen, resistless force. He struggled as the man condemned to death struggles in the hands of the executioner knowing that he cannot save himself. And every moment he felt that in spite of all his efforts to struggle against it, he was getting nearer and nearer to what terrified him. He felt that his agony was due both to his being thrust into this black hole and still more to his not being able to get right into it. What hindered him from getting into it was the claim that his life had been good that justification of his life held him fast and would not let him go forward and it caused him more agony than all all at once some force struck him in the chest in the side and stifled his breath breathing more than ever he rolled forward into the hole and there at the end there was some sort of light it had uh, happened with him as it had happened sometimes happened to him in a railway railway carriage, when he had thought he was going forward while he was going back, and all of a sudden recognized his real direction. Yes, it has all been not the right thing, he said to himself, but that's no matter. He could, he could do the right thing. What is the right thing, he asked himself, and suddenly he became quiet. This was at the end of the third day, two hours before his death. At that very moment, the schoolboy had stealthily crept into his father's room and gone up to his bedside. The dying man was screaming and waving his arms. His hands fell on the schoolboy's head. The boy snatched it, pressed it to his lips, and burst into tears. At that very moment, Ivan Ilyich had rolled into the hole and caught sight of the light, and it was revealed to him that this uh, that his life had not been what it ought to have been but that that could still be set right. He asked himself, What is the right thing? and became quiet, listening. Then he felt someone was kissing his hand. He opened his eyes and glanced at his son. He felt sorry for him. His wife went up to him. He glanced at her. She was gazing at him with open mouth, the tears unwiped streaming over her nose and cheeks, a look of despair on her face. He felt sorry for her. "'Yes, I'm making them miserable,' he thought. "'They're sorry, but it will be better for them when I die.' He would have said this, but had not the strength to utter it. "'Besides, why speak? I must act,' he thought. With a glance to his wife, he pointed to his son and said, "'Take away. Sorry for him, and you do.' He tried to say, forgive, but said, forgah, but too weak to correct himself, uh, shook his head, knowing that he would would understand whose um, understanding mattered. And all at once it became clear to him that what had tortured him and would not leave him was suddenly dropping away all at once on both sides, and on ten sides, and on all sides. He was sorry for them, must act so that they might not suffer. Set them free and be free himself of those agonies. How right and how simple, he thought. And the pain, he asked himself, where's it gone? Eh? where are you, pain? He began to watch for it. Yes, here it is. Well, what of it? Let the pain be. And death, where is it? He looked for his old, accustomed terror of death, and did not find it. Where is it? What death? There was no terror, because death was not either. In the place of death there was light. So this is it, he suddenly exclaimed aloud. What joy! To him all this passed in a single instant, and the meaning of that instant suffered no change after. For those present, his agony lasted another two hours. There was a rattle in his throat, a twitching in his wasted body. Then the rattle and the gasping came at longer and longer intervals. It is over, someone said over him. He caught those words and repeated them in his soul. Death is over, he said to himself. It's no more. He drew in a breath stopped midway in the breath, stretched, and died. The End